we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 tonight. We're going to be picking up in verse 11. We sort of left off in verse 11 last week, but we're going to uh, double up on that and, and go through verse 18 tonight. Uh, this is a uh, uh, the beginning of a uh, of a second major section in this letter that John wrote in in chapter one verses five verse five through chapter t- three verse ten. The message that John gives is that God is light, and and now beginning in this verse in three eleven through five twelve, the message changes to to God is love. And so, and because God is love, Christians are to love one another. The, the importance of Christians loving one another just cannot be overstated. In fact, to hate your brother is, is akin to murdering your brother, just like, just like Cain murdered Abel in Genesis 4, and he's going to reference that tonight. Uh, Jesus teaches us that, that loving one another provides a powerful witness to a watching world. Anybody remember what he said in John 13, 35? He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you, what? It's kind of sluggish tonight. If you what? If you love one another. Love is the quintessential evidence that says to others, I belong to and I follow after Jesus. That's the, 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 the number one earmark uh, that should be in our lives. And it says that my life is to be identified with, with the life of Christ. And and now John, <coughs> throughout this letter, he has a habit of creating these contrasts where he talks about he talks about light and darkness. He talks about different things. And now he's going to use another contrast, another vi- very vivid contrast by talking about love and hate. And he instructs us and enables us to examine the genuineness of our life of love with Christ. And it's, the test is convic- convicting and it's also very clear. So. I want to begin reading in verse 11, 1 John 3, 11. We'll go through verse 13 right now. It says this, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Just a moment. Tickle right there. Now, verse 11 flows naturally out of verse 10. Uh, the, the child of God, having been born of God, does what is right, which, which includes loving his brother. We, talk, we ended last week talking about that. We talked about how Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Uh, and yet the greatest command that he gave to us is to love, uh, to love one another. And so, so to to live righteously and to obey the commands of God includes loving your brother. That's, that's just the way it is. Now, in contrast to that, the child of the devil does, does not do what is right, and he hates and, and even murders his brother. Just as, just as God delights in giving life, the devil equally delights in producing death. And that's what we have to understand is, 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 is there, there's this crystal clear contrast between children of God and, and children of the devil between lovers and haters. And there's really no middle ground. We think there is. People tend to, we, we act like there's a middle ground, but there's really no middle ground. And to make this plain, John goes back in, in time, all the way back to the beginning, to the very first family. And there he, he draws our attention to the first murder in human history. 
the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And, and he will address both the act and the sinister source behind the act. So just, I mean, we all know this, but, but just a little bit of a refresher. Cain and his brother were Adam and Eve's first two sons. And the question is, why did Cain kill his brother? What were Cain's motives? What led him to that place? Because it, that's a pretty severe reaction. You know, I mean, I, I've had, I remember growing up in my household <clears throat> and in my house, there were, there were, we had, well, there were four boys and one girl. And I can tell you that there were times when there were, there were disagreements, shall we say, between my brothers and myself. I remember times when my older brother was always significantly bigger than me. And, uh, and, uh, but I was quicker. So I would remember, I remember we'd get into these spats and my whole thing was, I was relying on my ability to get away from him before he got his hands on me. But, but it, you know, you got to go a long way for a brotherly argument, a brother, brotherly disagreement to get to the point where you actually commit murder on your own flesh and blood. But Cain killed his brother. The reason behind it is because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother Abel had been doing what, what was right. This is what John is saying here. He makes it a little more clear than some other than, than the story actually even in Genesis. Moved by his spiritual father, the evil one, uh, Cain's heart was filled with jealousy and envy and resentment. And, and we know Abel brought a sacrifice to God that was acceptable and righteous, and Cain brought one that was evil and unacceptable. By the way, I, you know, I remember years ago I heard somebody saying, well, Abel brought a blood sacrifice and Cain didn't, and so that was the deal. But no, that's not it at all, because God in the, in the law, he told them, the Israelites, to bring uh, uh, grain offerings as well as blood offerings. And so it's not the type of offering. The problem was the heart behind the offering. And uh, in fact, if you go and read it, you'll see some, I'm not going to go into, get into it too much tonight, but, but if you go read the story, you'll see that it talks about how Abel brought the, the best of this, of, of his, uh, of his flock <clears throat> as a, as an offering for the Lord. But then it just says that Cain brought some of his crop. Doesn't even say he brought his first fruits or his best. He just brought some. And so his heart was in the wrong place. And, and Cain hated Abel over this, the fact that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected his. And, and, and that hatred uh, turned to murder. And, but what John is trying to say here, and that's why I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but the point that John is trying to make is that it is not that Cain murdered his brother, and therefore became a child of the devil. But what John is saying is that because Cain belonged to the evil one already, his anger and jealousy then naturally led him to murder. In fact, I mean, you, you can see uh, how he worded it here. He said, he said why, did he, why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers are, were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. So now, you got to see there's a connection here. He's using Cain, he's setting up Cain to be a prototype, a picture of the world. Cain was wicked and hated what was righteous. And so, he's, and so he says, because we see this even in this story, don't be surprised when the world hates you. That's the connection he's making here between these two. Um, <clears throat> the writer, professor, and political activist Elie Wiesel, he once said this. He said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And that, and that sentiment has been repeated by preachers ever since as Wiesel 
touched on something that's that's true about love. He understands that love is about concern for others expressed in mindful and proactive gestures. And, and in this sense, indif- indifference certainly is the absence of love uh, because love does not ignore, love does not neglect, love is not apathetic. But, but, but I honestly, I don't know that John would agree that that indifference is the opposite of love because in his customary binary fashion, because John goes, draws these two contrasts so often, but it seems clear that John regards love and hate as opposites in his passage with what he's writing. Uh, while love seeks the welfare of another, of another hate seeks destruction. See, indifference would say, I don't care what happens to you, good or bad. And that's why, that's why I think John is drawing this and showing us that really the opposite of love is, is not indifference, but it is hate because the opposite of love wants to, to, it seeks the welfare of another one. And the opposite of that would be seeking the destruction of that one. So that's the difference there. Indifference is the absence of love, which is, it's, it's still devastating and it's still evil. It's terrible. But hate is its opposite. While hate does not necessarily lead to physical murder, John claims that anyone who hates is a murderer nonetheless. So we're going to get a little bit into that um, in, in the, because it's about the heart. This, is, this really ties closely to some of the things that Jesus taught. Uh, you know, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount started talking about what life is like and expectations are under grace, we begin to see that grace raises the bar of, of our activity and our actions. It doesn't lower it. See, some people use grace to lower their, their, their actions. They say, well, God is full of grace, so I can sin if I want, because His grace is greater. But the requirements under grace are actually greater than they were under the law. And you can see that because what did Jesus say? You, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Right? That's the law. But Jesus, does he raise the bar or lower the bar? He raises it because he said, hey, it's not just about whether you actually act on the lust that's in your heart. He said, if you've got that lust in the first place, you're just as bad off as if you had actually done it. And that's why hate and murder are closely related in this in this in the scripture in these ways, because if I hate a person in my heart, I've already wished for their destruction. So I'm already a murderer in the same way that the person Jesus said that uh, if you if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And, and so murder is hate in action. And, and hate stands opposed to life and is destructive to the one who does the hating. But, you know, it's also destruct, destructive to the not just to the one who is hated, but it's destructive to the one who's holding the hate. Um, there's a Baptist minister named Harry Emerson Fosdick. And he wrote this. I thought this was a great quote. Uh, he said, hating people is like burning down your own home to get rid of a rat. That's what it does. You may get rid of the rat, but you're going to suffer a lot more than what you think you're going to realize. And so, and so to all of this, where John is saying, um, you know, that we're supposed to love one another. If you have hate, you've already committed murder. And he's saying, Cain did this. He was the murderer. Don't be surprised. To all of this, he says, in, in, with the case that he's building there, he says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Do not be surprised. 
Now, now Jesus, we know, wants his followers to be distinctive. He, he sets his followers apart from the world. And, and that's really the, the core idea of being holy, is that holy, if something is holy in Scripture, the first core idea of that is that it's set apart for, for God for a specific purpose. And so uh, he, he sets us apart for, from the world, and, and, and his choosing and setting believers apart makes them holy, helps them grow closer to him. But here's the thing, and this is part of what we need to understand, is that that very separation actually arouses unbelievers' animosity. I mean, we can see this just on a very natural scale, on a small scale. Uh, you know, somebody that, that say you, you used to go out and party with your friends, then you get saved and the Lord convicts you and you say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be involved in drunkenness or anything like this anymore. And so you stop going. And what, does, what happens sometimes with some of those old friends? Well, you think you're better than us? And they start that kind of business because as Christ is separating him from the sin, it's also separating him from the world who, who revels in the sin. And then the, that creates some, some animosity there. Uh, and the other thing is that uh, when we are living a holy life, when we're walking in step with the Spirit, that also, in a sense, serves as a spotlight to shine on where other people, where people in the world are failing, uh, morally speaking, in, in, in their walk with God. And so, and that's, that's really what I think a lot of times is happening when that old buddy says, oh, you think you're better than us now? I think it's more that the Holy Spirit is showing them, hey, your way is leading you to death. Your way is, is bad. Your way is sinful. Your way is, is not pleasing to me. And instead of responding to the Holy Spirit, he lashes out at the person that, that the Holy Spirit is using. But, but those who live for God will often be hated by the world because they make the world painfully aware of their immorality and their sin in their, in their life. The, the truth is the world would prefer that Christians be like them. Just be like us. But because believers are different, that alone causes the world to hate them. Um, but, but the truth is, the reality is, the bottom line is that it is natural for the world, represented by Cain, it's natural for the world to hate you because the world's father, the devil, hates God, and we're children of God. So it's a, natural, it's a natural thing. It's in the very nature. Now, here's the thing about it, though. I, I don't think I'm really shocking anybody, especially in our culture right now. I don't think anybody is hearing this and saying, what? The world hates me? The world doesn't like Christians? I didn't know this. I don't think there's anybody shocked by this, especially in our culture. It's, become, it's becoming more and more common. Uh, and so I don't think I don't think necessarily the point here is to inform us. I think John, the readers of John know they've already experienced persecution. They already know these things. But I think what John is trying to get across here is that is that you need to be aware of this so you know how to respond to it. Because such hostility can the world from the world can be very difficult to take for some believers. You know, I mean, I mean, as a believer, some some people, they just don't see themselves as opposed to the world and, and they find it unreasonable that the world should be opposed to them. And, and listen, from a theological point of view, 
It is unreasonable that the world should be opposed to followers of Jesus because it's unreasonable for the world to oppose Jesus himself because he is God the Son who came to give us life. Why would we oppose him if we know that he loves him? So theologically, if we know who Jesus is, it doesn't make any sense for anybody in the world to oppose him. But, but the answer to that question is, why would we oppose him? Is The answer is that our hearts are rebellious and, and in, in their natural state, our hearts reject God and reject the one whom he sent. So, so it may be unreasonable in a sense, but opposition should not be surprising. Believers should expect hatred from the world. But here's the key. Here's the part we have to hold on to and, and understand. We should not give the world extra cause for, for hatred. So there's two things, two parts of this I want to talk about. If the world chooses to hate the followers of Jesus, then so be it. There's not one thing I can do about that. If there are people in the world who hate me because I follow Jesus, I can't change that. So I just need to just say, so be it and live with that. However, Christians can make things worse for themselves in unnecessary and sometimes ungodly ways. Christians can provoke hatred uh, or even more extreme hatred by being unnecessarily judgmental, harsh, and mean-spirited. Now, I, I want to make it clear here because the world, if you just speak truth, the world will accuse you of being judgmental. That's not what I'm talking about. But there are Christians who are ju judgmental. Are we, are we on the same page here? We, we know this is true, right? Uh, because, uh, I, I mean, and we know there are Christians that are mean-spirited. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the church. I don't even care to remember the name of the church, but there's that, that so-called Baptist church in Kansas. You remember they'd show up at places and, and they, would, uh, they would protest against homosexuals and, and, uh, and, and they would hold up signs that say, say God hates fags, this sort of thing. And please forgive me if that word offends you or anything, but they'd hold up these signs attacking and, and doing these sort of things. And then and, and they, were not, they were not representing the spirit of Christ and how he cares for them. He, he, he wants them to be set free from the sin. And, and so that's an example of what I mean. That's not what Jesus had in mind when he said the world would hate his followers. But such behavior, you know, in those groups like that, it, it, it brings disrepute to Jesus rather than honor. And, and yet the, those that engage in that type of behavior, often think of themselves as serving God. And so they will gladly bear, they actually bear it, wear it, uh, hatred as the badge of honor in their lives, because to them, they think it confirms their standing with, with the Lord. But of course, this whole idea is off. If you're, if you're returning hate with hate, if you're returning judgment with judgment, if you're returning all of these horrible things with the same thing and attacking the same way, then you're not representing Christ because that's not how he dealt with sinners. And I'm not saying, believe, trust me, I, I'm in, if you heard the message Sunday, you know I'm telling you the truth. I'm not saying that we should ever, ever not speak the truth because we're afraid it's going to offend somebody. That's not what I'm saying. That's not being judgmental, but I'm saying how we speak the truth makes a huge difference in the way that we interact with the people around us. The, the world will hate us, hate believers, because our allegiance is to Jesus. We need to know that. But we ought to engage the unbelieving world with love, with respect, 
with kindness. Uh, that's why I love it. You know, I, I, I've heard of churches where, you know, they had uh, some big group that would show up and protest against the church because they were, you know, making a stand against sin or they preached a sermon about against sin and whatever it might be. And then this group shows up to protest them. You know what I love? I've seen this happen uh, in, in, in read stories about this sort of thing. But I love it when the church goes out there and starts serving those people, giving them water on a hot day and asking them, serving them donuts, loving them, serving them, because those people are not our enemy. Um, our words should be gracious and our hearts forgiving. After all, if we, if we really understand God's grace and what He's done in our lives, we would know that it's only by, by God's grace that we're right with Him. It's only by God's grace that my sin is forgiven. And my sin is not like a, you know, a higher class sin than somebody else's sin. You know, you know what we do a lot of times? Uh, so many times, uh, especially if you've been in church for a long time, what we do is we get angry because people are sinning differently than we sin. That's what we do so many times, honestly, because we're angry at that sin. But then when we do, we'll have to look at our own sin, whether it's pride or, or, you know, I hate to say this after that meal, gluttony or, you know, or whatever it might be, you know, but, but we, we want to just, we want to point the finger at them and say, well, yeah, but my sins are different. And, and, you know, the other thing we do is that we, we do this so regularly we, we tend to judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intent. Well, you know what? We should judge ourselves by our actions as well and learn to walk in graciousness. Um, don't, don't be surprised. You know, the, the fact is we are who we are by God's grace. I'm forgiving of my sin. I'm clean before God not because I did anything, not because I deserve it, but because of what Christ has done, because of His grace. Therefore, there is no room for pride. There is no room for hostility. There's no room for self-righteous indignation. Do not be surprised or caught off guard when people of this world, people like Cain, hate you. Cain hated his brother because Cain was evil. Abel was righteous. That's what it really boils down to. And, and when people hate you, it's their nature. However, what John is saying is, don't you be like Cain. Don't you be like Cain. Don't descend to their level. Resist that primal urge to return hate with hate or murder with murder. And it's vital in the face of, of, of vitriolic opposition that believers do not respond in kind, that we don't give back what's being dished out to us. We must always show grace and forgiveness and kindness and reflect the love of, and the grace of God to those sinners. That's not easy to do, by the way. In fact, it, in fact you better be filled with the Spirit if you're going to do this. You need the empowerment of God to be able to do this. This is not something that comes naturally to us. This is not something in our human nature. This is something God has to do in our lives. But, but if God's, if the world hates us, what John is saying is, uh, don't be surprised by that, but be prepared to respond in a way that brings honor to Jesus.
I read a story today about a, um, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria was a leftist professor, professor of literature at Syracuse University. As a feminist and lesbian, she was speechless when in 1997, the Christian group Promise Keepers, anybody remember Promise Keepers? Uh, well, they held a two-day event at the university, and she criticized the university's decision to allow the group to use the campus for a weekend, and she wrote an article for the local newspaper attacking Promise Keepers. And in response, she, le- she received quite a bit of hate mail uh, in response to her news- newspaper article, but-, but one letter stood out. Uh, it was from a pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, and his name was Ken Smith. And this letter was respectful and kind, but probing as, as Pastor Smith asked Butterfield to defend her presuppositions. Well, that letter bothered, bothered Butterfield and caused her to consider the validity of, of her historical materialist worldview. And, and that letter also initiated a friendship with Ken and his wife, whose name was Floyd. And her, her previous experience with Christians included those, as she said, quote, who mocked me on Gay Pride Day. But she said that was not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. Ken and his wife, Floyd, she said, entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. Rosaria began to read the Bible reading it several times over the course of a year. She fought against it with all of her might, but it overflowed into her world. And, and one day, on her own accord, she, quote, and this is her, what she wrote, she said, she rose from the, dead of my lesbian, from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later sat in the pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked, in this war, war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. And Jesus triumphed. That, that beautiful story of Rosaria's unlikely conversion demonstrates how important it is to show grace and love in the face of opposition. Because if I return hate for hate, I can never, they will never see and understand the love Christ has for them that can set them free. The, the, it, it all began, it all began with, with Ken's gracious letter in response to her hostile newspaper article. The, the tone of that letter, along with the warm friendship that followed, were the factors that God used to bring Rosaria to faith in Christ. Now, she's a wife and a mother with a ministry to college students. And guess what? She now faces hostility from an unbelieving world. In some ways even more than other Christians. But, you know, sadly, too many believers respond to hostility with hostility in return. But here's what we know. Hate mail does not lead people to repentance, and it does not honor Christ. I've said this so many times, and it's so, it's, in the moment, it is so hard to remember. But I have never, ever, ever seen anybody argue to Jesus. I've never seen anybody say, well, 
You've destroyed every argument I had. I guess logically that makes sense. So I'll give my life to Christ. No, I've seen the opposite happen that as the argument continues. And I'm talking about open discussion. I'm talking about an argument where, where you're not even listening. It's just a constant battering. I've seen the other opposite happen where they begin to harden their heart in the moment. Uh, gracious forgiveness, love and mercy. It's what our world needs in the face of, of its opposition to Jesus. If we want them to see Jesus, if, they want, if we want them to know Him, if we want them to find freedom in Christ, we have to learn, yes, to speak the truth, but we have to learn to speak the truth in love. And that's very difficult when somebody's in your face calling you every name in the book. But that's where we need the supernatural power of God. That's where we need the fruit of the spirit of self-control. To be able to stand there and say, you know what? I, I love you. I'm going to serve you. I want you to see Christ in me. Let's go on. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So one of the positive benefits, one of the great blessings of loving others and loving one another is that we know that we have been born again and we have eternal life when, when we're walking in that love. Now, I'll just be really clear, kind of a little bit very similar to what some of the things we talked about last week. But let's be clear on what John is saying and what he's not saying. John is saying that continually loving others out of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us is evidence. It's a proof that we have moved from the realm of spiritual death into the realm of spiritual life, that that has taken place. He is not saying that eternal life is earned by loving others. It's what a lot of people in the world want to say. Well, if I just, I just, I'm a good person. I love people. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn your way to God just by being a good person and by loving other people. That's not what he's saying at all, but rather he's simply saying that loving others is evidence that we already have eternal life. It, it, it therefore becomes just another avenue of assurance of eternal life. As I love my brothers and sisters in the community of faith well, then I am assured that I am in the family of God. However, as he says here, he makes it clear that if a heart is empty of love, that hate fills the void because there, there's no middle ground between love and hatred, light and darkness, life and death. You know, there's no middle ground. You turn a light on in a dark room and you don't have this area, you know, between the light bulb and, and the floor where you have dark here and light here. And then there's kind of this place in the middle where it's just kind of gray area. No, it's either light or dark. It's either love or hate. Where a person has one, it dispossesses the other. And if a person hates someone, it's, it's like, as I said earlier, it's like wishing that the other person was dead. That's what hate does. And, and, and the Lord sees that inner desire as equal to the outward act that would result from it. Therefore, anyone who hates another Christian is already really a murderer at heart. And if I feel those things in my life, that's, that's a, something I need to pay attention to and deal with. Now, all of this is good. But here's the thing, when we hear we need to love one another, it's great to hear that. And we say, yes, I want to love one another. But let me tell you something. It is, it is ultimately meaningless if we don't really understand what love is. 
See, if we have a, if we have a, a faulty understanding of love, then I'm going to say, well, I'm going to love my brother and sister and I'm going to be doing the, you know, trying to express love and trying to live in a certain way. But if I don't understand what love really is, then I might not be doing what I think I'm doing. And so I, I so knowledge of, of, of that, that I'm required to love is useless if I don't under, have a, a proper understanding of love, because then that, that, I, that knowledge cannot be applied in a proper manner. So in contrast to hate, which takes life, love offers life. And it does so by, by laying one's life uh, down one's life and by giving life to others, verses 16 and 17. We're going to read those in just a moment. Of course, Jesus is the preeminent example of that kind of love. But here's, here's, here's the, the kind of the nuance here. John shows us that Jesus' death is not simply an example of love, it is for him the definition of love. He said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's not just an example to show us what it looks like. He's saying, this is what love is. You know, there's an apocryphal story about a medieval monk who announces that he announced that he would be preaching the following Sunday evening on the on the love of God well <clears throat> comes Sunday the, as the shadows fell and the light ceased to come in through the cathedral windows and the congregation gathered in the darkness of the altar that monk lit a candle and he carried it up to the crucifix first he illumined the crown of thorns next the two wounded hands then the marks of the spear wound and in the hush that fell he blew out the candle and left the cathedral because there was nothing else to say. Because Jesus is this example, believers ought to lay down their lives for one another because we see love played out and Jesus laying his life down for us. Then our response is to lay our lives down for one another, one another. Now, what does it mean to lay your life down for a brother or sister? Well, there, just give you three things. Number one, this is a huge one in America. It means giving up your rights. I'm gonna lay down my life. It means I have no rights. It means if you offend me, I don't have the right for, to, to hold you accountable. I don't have a right to, 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 to expect anything from you. I don't have the right for anything because that all belongs to God. That's why. When we understand that, that's why we can say, we can stand on the scripture where, it says, where God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, because I don't have the right to repay, that belongs to him. So I, I mean, that means I give up my rights. I don't, I don't have the right to not be offended. A lot of people think that's a right. It's not a right for anybody, really. Second is it means seeking the other person's best, even when it hurts you, or it costs you dearly. Isn't, isn't that what Jesus did? First of all, he laid down his rights. He had, he had the right to not die. But then what he did was he, he sought what was best for us, even though it was going to be excruciatingly painful and it was going to cost him dearly. And third, it means putting another person's needs and interests above your own desires. What did Jesus say in the garden? Lord, 
there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what? Not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. I'll lay my desires down because these other people need me. So love then is defined by sacrificial giving of oneself for another. We also see that what that means for us, the practical application of that is that real love takes action. Verse 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, it is, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You know, you know we, we, we say things, you know, we, you hear people say these things, or maybe we dream about these heroic moments where we say, well, I, I would lay my life down for so-and-so or whatever. But you know, the truth is, seldom will believers be called upon to experience martyrdom for another person. However, every day we face needy people whom, whom we ought to be willing to help if we have the resources to do so. And laying my, my life down doesn't mean that, I just, that I'm willing to die for you. What difference does it make if I'm willing to die for you if I'm not willing to, to do something you know, far less than that and help you where you are? This, this teaching really parallels. It's very similar to what James taught in James chapter 2. James 2, 14 through 17, he wrote this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Look, listen to this. See if this doesn't sound similar. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, says all the right things. That's, that's a wonderful sentiment. But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Believers should respond to God's love for them by loving other people and by putting other people's needs before their own desires and before our own ownership of the world's goods. So this is the practical side of it where he's saying, listen, uh, you know, Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we need to lay our lives down for others. And, and the practical way you can do that is by looking and if you see a need, you give what you have to help meet that need and you put that person's needs above your ownership of anything that you, that you want to have. See, talk is cheap. Anybody heard that? You ever heard that phrase, talk is cheap? And, and so unsubstantiated claims, just words or speech are worthless. Saying the right things, it's meaningless. John dismissed the idea that God's love is a mere theoretical concept he rejected the notion that sentimental words are an adequate expression of love to others. It's not enough to say, I love you. It's not, a, not enough to say, I'm praying for you. It's not enough to say, well, I hope that you have all your needs met, but we have to do something, whatever we have, whatever we can do. Now, listen, if you, and I've had many days like this, where you have nothing that you can offer, then offering your love and your prayers is everything that you have. But you know what? If you come to me and you say, man, I'm really hungry. I haven't eaten in two days. And I got a $5 bill. Or, well, it's kind of hard to get much for $5. So I have a $10 bill in my pocket. And I say, but I'm saving it because I'm, you know, I'm wanting to pick up you know, a candy bar or something later. If I look at you and say, well, I, I, man, I'm really sorry. I'm glad, sorry to hear that. I'm just going to be praying for you. I hope you get something to eat. 
but I leave that $10 bill there because I know I want to use it for something for myself later. John and James are both saying, you don't get this then. You don't have faith. And John is saying, you don't have the love of God in you. Because the love of God, as expressed through Jesus, you see, what, what is, God didn't just say, oh, I love you, humanity. You're so wonderful. I hope, I hope you can figure out a way to get to heaven. It's not what he did. He gave the most precious gift that he had to give. Jesus gave the most precious gift that he had to give, his life. That's God's love. And so if I'm not willing to give sacrificially, then I'm not reflecting God's love because that's what he did. See, this is what he's saying. Biblical love is a verb. Love must take action. Now, it may begin with feelings of concern and compassion for those in need. But biblical love will always result in tangible, substantial sacrifice. John 3.16, which we all know very well, provides the best example of this truth. I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but just the first few words. What does, he, what does he say? God so loved the world that what? That he gave. Laying down one's life means giving something up for another. If you have material possessions, but your brother and sister is in need, love will share those possessions. Love, love means the, the giver goes without something for the sake of the recipient and here's the part that's hard for us giving things up and and loving one of the other people loving one another sacrificially that's one thing but that it's not a one-time action it's a lifelong discipline showing concern for the needs of others is it is what it is it's a daily struggle and what is it for what does it do it's a daily struggle against selfishness See, because if I can learn to live this way, every day then I'm battling my own selfishness, my own that I want to keep this, I want to have this, I want to own this, I want this for me, me, me. If I'm learning to give away those things, then at the same time what's happening is I'm battling the selfishness that rises up within me. And as I do that, then I become more and more like Christ. Because, listen, I believe this with my whole heart. When you talk about becoming Christ-like, I think... And you can argue with me and you can come up with another one, but, and I'll probably agree with you because you're probably smarter than I am. But I think, I believe that becoming more Christ-like really boils down to becoming more selfless in everything. Now, while we may experience loving moments, you know, when we're good at putting the needs of others ahead of our own, it's a whole different thing to live a loving life. And a life lived in regular and consistent service to others, it's only possible through the indwelling of God's love. That's what he said in, in verse 17. We read it there. He said, dear children, let's, uh, or he said, he, well, verse 17 at the end, he said, if the person who sees his brother in need but he has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? In other words, 
That doesn't come naturally to us. But if the love of God is in us, that's the kind of thing we will do. That's the point that he's making there. If, if, if anyone sees a brother or sister in Christ but has no pity on them, he says, how can the love of God be in that person? Now, it may be, and we're about to close here, but it may be that John has the parable of the Good Samaritan in mind. Uh, you know, we know the story. A man attacked by robbers and left half dead. He's passed over by a priest, passed over by a Levite. But then a Samaritan of all people took pity on him. And Jesus used that word. And the word that Jesus used for took pity is the same word that John uses here when he talks about not having pity on someone in need. So he may be in his mind connecting the two. But Jesus's point is that the Samaritan is the true neighbor of the robbed and the beaten man in that scenario. But And John's point is that a lack of such pity on someone in need reveals a lack of God's love in the heart. Now, Bob, Bob, a man named Bob Lodich shared a powerful story some time ago. I'm going to close by sharing it, and then we're going to pray. This is what he wrote. Years ago, a preacher noticed the family standing in front of him at a New Orleans convenience store did not have enough money to pay for their few items. He tapped the man on the shoulder and said, you don't need to turn around, but please accept this money. The man took the money without ever seeing the preacher. Nine years later, the pastor was invited to speak at a church in New Orleans. After the service, a man walked up to the preacher and shared this story about how he had come to faith in Christ. He said to him, several years ago, my wife and our child and myself, we were destitute. We had lost everything. We had no jobs, no money. We were living in our car. We also lost all hope. And we had agreed to a suicide pact, including our child. However, we decided to first give our son some food, so we drove to a convenience store to buy him some food and some milk. While we're standing in line at the store, we realized that we didn't have enough money to pay for these items, but a man behind us asked us to please take the money from his hand and not look at him. And this man told us, Jesus loves you. We left the store, drove to our designated suicide site, and we wept for hours. We couldn't go through with it, so we drove away. And as we drove, we noticed a church with a sign out front that said, Jesus loves you. We went to that church the very next Sunday, and both my wife and I were saved that day. He then told the pastor, when you began speaking this morning, I knew immediately that you were the man who gave us the money. How did he know? Well, the pastor was from South Africa and he had a very distinct accent. The man continued. He said, your act of kindness was much more than a simple good deed. Three people are alive today because of it. Listen, compassion, generosity, and giving are traits shared, sh traits shared by those who truly know the love of God. His compassion and generosity toward us teaches us to love others. We consider their needs, we give unselfishly, and we love with our actions, not just with our words. And all I can say is, who knows how God will use those kinds of expressions of love? You don't know how God can use an act of kindness to change a life. So give unselfishly. Love those around you. Live with an open hand. 
saying, this is not mine anyway. God, if you want me to give something away to help somebody, my hands are open. Take whatever you want. Who knows how God could use a life like that? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and we, we thank you that you, you showed us what love really is, that Jesus, you define love for us and that you gave yourself, you laid your life down for us. And Lord, in response to that, as we experience your love, I pray that that love would take hold so deeply in our hearts that we will in turn lay our lives down. And as we do that, as we lay our lives down in love for our brothers and sisters and love for people around us, that God, that Christ would be seen in us. You said that by this will all men know that, that we are your disciples, that we have love one for another. God, let our acts of laying our lives down show people the kind of love that you have for them. So God, I pray you'd help us to keep our eyes open, keep our ears open, keep our spirits on alert so that God, in those moments when we are confronted with a need, we will be prepared. And, and God, that as we are prepared, that we will serve, we will give, we will sacrifice, and you'd use those, those things, those acts, as a way to bring glory to your name. We give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.